0: Well, it's lovely to sample a bit of those airs of British music from the early part of the 20th century that are really the focus of our conversation today in Seekers and Scholars. So welcome. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host, for this podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm here in studio with Dr. Ryan Vigil. And what we're going to be doing is revisiting some moments from a conversation that we had with someone who has been described as an undisputed authority on hymnology, and that is Dr. John Richard Watson. And most recently, Dr. Watson is known for his extraordinary accomplishment, along with Dr. Emma Hornby, of producing the Canterbury Dictionary of Hymnology. Quote, the impossible task. But they did it. It came out online as a resource in 2013. So before we hear from Dr. Watson on what was energizing hymn creation in early 20th century Britain and the influence it had on the culture and creation of hymns more broadly, including on the Christian Science Hymnal, I have a question for you, Ryan. You are manager of general publications at the Christian Science Publishing Society. But you are a composer in your own right, with a deep knowledge about hymns, informed by your work in helping to produce the 2017 Christian Science Hymnal, Hymns 430-603. to 603. So, Ryan, tell us about the significance of the Canterbury Dictionary of Hymnology. I guess the best way to describe the significance of this
1: accomplishment is simply that upon completion, and in fact, as it was nearing completion, this Dictionary of hymnology immediately became the go-to reference resource for any English-language scholar of hymns. Mm-hmm. So uh, the accomplishment is quite extraordinary, and as I imagine Richard would be the first person to say, it's something that no single person can accomplish. These are volumes that are contributed to by a wide variety of experts and scholars. But someone has to collect and edit their work, and right. that's an extraordinary thing to consider. Yeah, um, This Dictionary of hymnology covers so many bases, um, a primary focus on hymnals, on the writers of hymn texts and the composers of hymn tunes, but also touching on a variety of ancillary topics dealing with regions, performance traditions, etc. Well,
0: let's hear a little bit from the man himself and about the man himself. This is Dr. Watson, Richard Watson, answering my question about how he got involved in the field of hymnology.
2: My father was very fond of hymns. I was brought up in a Methodist home, and Methodists are famous in this country for him singing, Mm -hmm. I think I've always been fascinated, rather rather as opera lovers are, I suppose, by this combination of words and music, and how music can bring out the finest words of the hymn, where I think I I disagreed with Carl Dorr on one of your uh, earlier podcasts, when he said the tune always wins, Mm. and I'm not quite sure that I agree with that. Mm I think that the tune wins when it's allied to the right words. Mm. And of course, literature and religion go closely together, so that when I became a student of literature, I became a lover of hymns as literature. And then in 1997, I wrote a book which was trying to say that far too much had been written by professional clergymen and professional musicians about hymns but no one had tried to say whether the hymns were good from the point of view of a literary critic Mm. and that was what I was trying to do. When that book was reviewed in the London Review of Books the reviewer said something like, "Um, this is a a book of great skill and charm and I wrote to him and said, thank you so much for that kind review and he said, what I actually put in was, this book is a, one of, of charm and skill, and love, mm. a labor of a... He said, in London Review of Books didn't like the word love much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we are... <laughs> Ryan, it was wonderful to be in conversation with somebody who um, is an advocate of love as, as part of uh, what's essential yes, in, in life and in, um, and in one's work. What was interesting for us in this conversation was that uh, Richard Watson is really noted for his scholarship as an expert on literature. But in our conversation, what we discovered was that the British influence on the 1932 Christian Science Hymnal, and is it fair to refer to that as really the the core hymnal of the Christian Science Church still today?
1: Yeah, to this day, the majority of hymns that are sung in Christian Science uh, services would, would be coming out of that that
0: hymnal. So um, it's the musical contribution from Britain that is so alive in in that hymnal. But uh, Dr. Watson, he uh, is Emeritus Professor of English Literature at the University of Durham. He was educated at Magdalen College at the University of Oxford. And in that clip that we heard, he referred to a previous library uh, webcast, in fact, with Dr. Carl Daw, who's at uh, the Boston University School of Theology, a hymn writer of renown, a a fellow of the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada. And I should add that Richard Watson is also a fellow, um, which is a very esteemed position to have with the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada. So it's interesting to feel that tug around what's most significant in a hymn, the music or the words. What what do you think, Ryan? Well, you know, it's...
1: um... It's an interesting question, and uh, I think the only thing you can really do is dodge it, um, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. Um, okay. I'm but, also, I, but of course I have something to say. I'm, I'm, although I'm hesitant to wade into a disagreement between Carl Daw and Richard <laughs> Watson, to Absolute giants <laughs> right. in the field that I, frankly, have no right <laughs> to assert my opinion uh, in this same <laughs> Just conversation at all. To say something and run. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, in a way, I wonder if I could sort of meet both of them halfway in a sense. And I okay. will admit that when Carl Dahl shared that that perspective that the music always wins, that the tune always wins, um, that makes a certain basic amount of sense to me. And I think it has something to do with the nature of the musical experience Music kind of surrounds us. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very enveloping, and it's very powerful. But at the same time, would hate to imply, and I imagine that this isn't what Carl Dahl was attempting to do, that the words are not important. So I think in a sense, my attempt to square the circle would be to say, to some extent in terms of the experience of the hymn, maybe the music does win, and I hope I have some authority to say this as a composer myself, as a musician myself. Nevertheless, my perspective is that it's the words that are more important. They
0: marry together yes. um, to create something bigger, I would say, than the sum of its uh, of its parts.
1: They do, and that I think has has relevance to the nature of this conversation that we had with Doctor Watson, where here he is a literary scholar with a deep founding. In hymns generally, but hymn texts specifically, and yet interesting to see that the primary British influence on the 1932 Christian Science Hymnal was more musical rather than literary in nature, and yet, can you really untangle the two? Mm -hmm. To some extent, whatever was happening in that British music within the world of early 20th century British hymn writing was impacted by what was happening in in British hymn texts as
0: well. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hear a little bit from Richard Watson about what was going on in British hymn writing, in British music, in those first 30 years of the 20th century.
2: In the first 30 years of the 20th century, Britain was in the process of reacting against all things Victorian. Mm. Queen Victoria had reigned from 1837 until her death in 1901, and there comes after that 1901 death a feeling that the Victorian age had not been as wonderful as it should have been. Mm -hmm. The predominant hymn book of the Victorian period was hymns ancient and modern, which was first published in 1860 and 1861 when it had uh, music as well as words. And then this became extraordinarily successful. It has been said that they had sold 35 million copies by 1900. And the reaction against things Victorian turned into a reaction against hymns, ancient and modern. Mm -hmm. Now, the music of this period was dominated by the figure of Ralph Vaughan Williams, Mm -hmm. who was appointed the editor of the English hymnal, which is the book that came out in 1906 and transformed English hymnody. Vaughan Williams was invited to do it by the secretary of the committee, who was called Percy Dearmer, mm-hmm. who had a tremendous amount of uh, influence on the content, both music and words, of the English hymnal. And he encouraged Vaughan Williams to take on the job by telling him that it would take him two months to do. Vaughan Williams later ruefully said, it took me two hard years mm-hmm. rather than two months. But what Vaughan Williams did was to reject many of the older Victorian tunes by composers like John Bacchus Dykes and Joseph Barnby and others. And he tried to do away with almost all of them. When the committee for the English hymnal objected, he agreed to include them, but he included them in an, an appendix, which he called the Chamber of Horrors, <laughs> which is named after Madame Tussaud's right. waxworks, which was which had a room called the Chamber of Horrors, right. in which they were found notorious murderers and other criminals.
0: So um, <laughs> he he wants to imprison. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> if not execute, <laughs> the Victorian age uh, hymns. It's, it's really kind of a remarkable thing to consider, Ryan, that there was such a profound antipathy, uh, it seems, in British music composition for hymns during this period. And yet its influence on the Christian science, hymnal is one where both, seem to be celebrated. The Victorian as well as post-Victorian, early uh, 20th century British hymnody.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, Perhaps in the United States, there was a little bit of critical distance. Mm -hmm. It was was a little less present, Mm -hmm. um, that sense of conflict. um, Some of the, frankly, emotions and passions that may have Right. Run around it. Um, they may have they may have been quieter here, and it may have been much easier to cast a cool eye upon the possibilities and simply choose what was deemed best. Which would include some Victorian hymns as well as some hymns that come right out of the um, 1906 English Hymnal.
0: So, Richard, Doctor Watson indicated that the towering figure in British hymn tune writing of this period is. Rafe Von Williams. He had a huge following that sort of came behind him that was part of the same wave of British hymn tune writing during this period. Let's hear a little bit about this penumbra, if you will, of Von Williams.
2: The climate of sacred poetry of this period, which is pretty strong in English because it's reacting against the Victorian period. That is something that the 1932 book doesn't use very much. Mm -hmm. But the musical side, I think, is wonderfully enriched by the work of Vaughan Williams and the composers who worked in his shadow. He was succeeded by various other composers, such as Gustav Holst and Percy Whitlock, and Percy Buck, Basil Harwood, and people like Harold Ferguson, nearly all of these people were writing for schools in which most of them taught. And they taught in schools which we call, rather stupidly, public schools. And nowadays, it's a term that nobody much uses, but we now tend to call them independent schools. Mm-hmm. But in these 30 years or so, the public school was a very important part of British musical education. Mm-hmm. And you have these music masters there writing these tunes, which can be sung in unison by the boys or the girls, and tunes like Wolvercote by Harold Ferguson for, Oh Jesus, I Have Promised which in the 1932 book is set to a hymn by Vivian Burnett called Oh, When We See God's Mercy. Oh, when we see God's mercy. And Percy Whitlock writes several tunes for the hymns of Mary Baker Eddy, Mm -hmm. and very beautiful ones they are. Whitlock was born in 1903, which makes him just about 30 years younger than Vaughan Williams. And a lot of these live in a sort of what I might call a Vaughan Williams penumbra of hymnody.
0: Mm. Yeah, Ryan, that that penumbra. How would you characterize the, the qualities of that penumbra, that overarching kind of embrace
1: thinking about you know the von williams contribution generally and filtering that a little bit through the the christian science hymnal uh, one of the things that's that's most striking and one of the things that you notice if you're looking carefully at the selections in the 1932 christian science hymnal and those in the nineteen o six English hymnal is the presence of several folk tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a project that von Williams was really interested in was was bringing in a music uh, that feels that it springs from the earth, uh, that it that it really comes from the people, mm. as it were. And incidentally, there's a great deal of historical precedent for that kind of thing. Our, mm-hmm. our understanding of Gregorian chant and the various melodies that would have been used for plain song and other melodies in, throughout the church's history is that in many cases, those would have been folk songs mm-hmm. that, that were then adapted for specifically religious purposes. So if you do look at these two hymnals sort of side by side, you see an extraordinary amount of overlap. Many of the English tunes specifically folk tunes from the 1932 hymnal, show up right there in the English hymnal. And in fact, all of the Welsh folk melodies in the 1932
0: Christian Science hymnal are found in the English hymnal. Well, I've just wanted to alight on this one moment from our conversation, because I just particularly like the song that he's talking about.
2: There is a tune called St. Clement... Written for a hymn by William Mackenzie, who has seven hymns in the nineteen thirty two book, who was closely associated with Mary Baker Eddy. Mm-hmm. Um, one hymn called What Brightness Dawned in Resurrection, which is set to a hymn by Clement Schofield, mm-hmm. which Arthur Sullivan, who was Schofield's editor, called Saint Clement. <laughs> Named after the composer. Right. That is the one that goes um, What brightness dawned in resurrection.
0: I love that hymn. <laughs> I do. Um you know, in terms of the marriage of music. And words, I find this so interesting because Mackenzie is somebody who is very much a leading figure in the early history of Christian science. Work closely with Mary Baker Eddy, and I think what we see time and time again is a British-American marriage in these hymns of American words and British music.
1: Yeah, yeah. It in a, in a way, it's. Uh, it's just a, a little case study in, in what hymns are and how they function. There are times when there's a very, very close relationship between the words and the music, and they, and they develop together, and they spring together, and they, and they stick together. But in fact, hymns are famous for their flexibility, mm-hmm. that the, the words and the music can and often do travel independently. And, and what it provides for is the possibility of sort of minor revelations when a wonderful text and a wonderful tune find
0: their way together to create a truly successful hymn. Mm -hmm. One figure that he particularly makes note of as an American verse writer of significance is John Greenleaf Whittier. And that is fascinating that that stood out, I, I think, to Dr. Watson, because Whittier is so much a part of New England. He's so much part of the same kind of cultural context and heritage that Mary Baker Eddy was a part of, but they actually had met on several occasions. In fact, Mary Baker Eddy talks about how she visited him at his home in Amesbury. He was in a very decrepit condition at the time. Mary Baker Eddy spoke with him, spoke to him about her understanding of the healing message of scripture, as she understood it in Christian science. I'm just going to quote from an account of this that she dictated to uh, her secretary, Calvin Fry. Quote, By and by his, meaning Whittier's, countenance changed, and the sunshine of his former character beamed through the cloud, and his friends sat rapt in interest in the truth that I presented. When I rose to go, he came to me with both hands extended and said, I thank you, Mary, for your call. It has done me much good. Come again. The next day, he walked down to the village and was well. Never, to my knowledge, has he had a return of those symptoms. End of quote. Let's hear from Dr. Watson about Whittier and the Christian Science Hymnal.
2: My own feeling about the 1932 book is that it's a very, very fine book. There are nine hymns by a wonderful... 19th century American writer John Greenleaf Whittier Mm -hmm. which to my mind represent the finest elements of hymnody in that they produce with dignity and good sense the movements of the human imagination as they are contemplating the great mysteries of the love of God so um, that's I think where the secret of the 1932 book lies in its dignified and resourceful use of the music and of producing, of course, very many original hymns by Violet Hay and uh, Mackenzie and others. What the 1932 book does is to produce a whole, relevant culture to the Christian science movement, it seems to me.
0: You know, Richard mentions uh, someone by the name of Violet Hay or Violet Spiller Hay, and she has a very significant role in the production of the 1932 Christian Science hymnal. It was a hymnal that came about through the work of two hymnal committees, one based in London, England, one uh, based here in in Boston, and she very much, I think, led the, the London Committee in, in many ways. But it allowed her to get to know a lot of these British hymn composers that we've already talked about in this episode, including Rafe von Williams. An example of that is um, a hymn with the title of "Cine Nomine that uh, is typically sung with very different words. But in the Christian Science Hymnal, it has the words of Violet Hay. It is interesting to consider certain tunes
1: mm-hmm. that, frankly, in contrast to something I said earlier, that really are quite closely associated with maybe one particular text above,
0: above others. Mm-hmm. Well, it strikes me that the music in this sense communicates as, as spirit. Um, So you can have people in sort of Orthodox Church of England knowing this tune with the words um, for all the saints who from their labors rest. But if they were to encounter it in a Christian science service, they would feel that spirit, but with a different kind of attention in, in the words. And that perhaps helps to bridge those two religious experiences.
1: But I suspect that in this case, Violet Hay may have actually written these words to fit this music, and her words are very powerful, which is a wonderful match for the strong, march-like hymn tune that Ray von Williams has composed.
3: From these thy children gathered in thy name, from hearts made from lips redeemed from woe. Thy praise, O Father, shall
0: we've talked about the preeminent figure, Vaughan Williams, of British hymn writing in, in this part of the 20th century, the first 30 years, and its influence on the Christian Science Hymnal. But during our conversation with Dr. Watson, we spoke for a while about somebody very important to the Christian Science Hymnal, but who is from England, sort of a part uh, of this penumbra, but sort of a little bit further on in time, a little bit more distant in time from Ray Rayfond Williams, at least when he was starting his work on the 1906 hymnal. And that is of a figure, Norman Greenwood, who was very much involved in that London committee producing the uh, 1932 hymnal. And it was fascinating to hear Dr. Watson speak about this individual. Richard, what, what is the role of somebody like Norman Greenwood. Um, Are you familiar with him and and the role he may have played in wedding British composition composers with Mary Baker Eddy and and other verse writers who are in the the hymnal?
2: He's not well known in Britain, I have to say. He Mm -hmm. obviously had a very, very considerable influence on the 1932 hymnal. And I think for the better, I think he's a very fine arranger and and composer as well. So I, I think the Christian science denomination owes a great debt to Norman Greenwood. Mm-hmm. He became, at one point, the organist of the Temple Church in London, I seem to remember. Yes. But he's not uh, well known in in this country, as far as I know. Mm. He, his name leapt out of the pages at me <laughs> again and again, and I thought, that's um, that's extraordinary. Yeah, why don't you write him up for my Dictionary of Hymnology?
0: That, would be great. <laughs> that, that, that That's a great idea. It's lovely that he's made that invitation, and um, it's, it's something that I hope that uh, we we can contribute. And and it is a living volume, the, yes. di- the Canterbury Dictionary of Hymnology. And there are some very fine entries already in it about Christian Science Hymnody. It's been great to be with you, Ryan, to just... And reminisce about this time with, with Dr. Watson, we were only able to sort of alight on, on some of the conversation, but I hope it gave you, as it has given me, uh, just a richer sense of the vitality of British hymnody during this period and why it was so appropriate to be included in the Christian Science Hymnal, that that worked so well with the message of of these words that absolutely. are in the hymnal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A fascinating conversation and a, and a really interesting invitation to consider the breadth of the 1932 Christian Science hymnal. This conversation really does shine a light on the importance of what was happening in early 20th century British hymnody as an opportunity to really broaden the Christian Science hymnal and and make it what I think of as a global hymnal, Mm -hmm. um, as a hymnal that's not even purely Anglophone. It's, It's not just American and British, but it, it has even more in it than that, and the very rich legacy
0: of British hymnody is certainly quite discernible in it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. It's been great partnering with you in this transatlantic conversation with Dr. Richard Watson on British hymn composition of the early 20th century and its special relationship with the Christian Science Hymnal. It was lovely to listen to one example of that with the singing by Teddy Creselius of Cine Nomine, words by Violet Hay, music by Rafe Vaughan Williams. We'll hear another sampling from Teddy in just a minute as he gives us two verses from hymn number 231 in the Christian Science Hymnal, words by John Greenleaf Whittier, music by Norman Greenwood. But first, Ryan, let's have a proper goodbye with Richard Watson. Thank you so much, uh, Richard. Blessings to you. Thank you for your scholarship, your time with us today. It's a real inspiration.
2: Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Ryan. You've been wonderful yeah, to talk thank you. to. I've greatly enjoyed it. Oh, love, oh, life, of
3: faith and sight Thy presence maketh one As through transfigured clouds of white We trace the noonday sun We faintly hear, we dimly see In differing phrase we pray But dim or clear we all light, the
0: truth, the way. Please join us for our next episode as we delve into the Mary Baker Eddy Library's Women of History series. Three contributing authors to the series will talk about women they researched in our collections and how bringing attention to their remarkable stories broadens understanding of the significance of women's history. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars.
3: This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library.
4: Copyright 2020.